Good morning, beloved. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Acts chapter 8, Acts 8. Um, we begin our new, our, our fall winter session Sunday school entitled um, Context is Key. What does that verse mean by what it says? I'll pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day morning, and oh, how richly blessed we are. We thank you for your word, the presence of your spirit, and the divine revelation of truth given to us here by divine inspiration. We praise you and help us to understand more of the meaning of your word. For Christ's sake, amen. Um, I have wanted for some time to do a series on um, Bible verses that are most often taken out of context. Um, and I was motivated once again to do that this past summer with the August edition of Table Talk magazine um, titled, What Does That Verse Really Mean? Um, some of the verses covered there um, we will look at um, along with several others. I have no idea how long the series will last. Um, but I want to look at some verses that have been hijacked, uh, misused, and even abused by teachers, and as a result, uh, many Christians fall prey to a misinterpretation um, of Scripture. Um, when I used to browse the bookstores, that is, uh, Christian bookstores, do they even exist anymore? With the exception of Evangelical Bookstore, when I used to browse the shelves with the exception of John's store in North Park, which went on a business because of online sales, um, it was all too easy to spot various um, Christian self-help books written by popular evangelical preachers of our day whose titles and subjects were derived from terribly misused biblical texts. Bible phrases yanked out of their context to, to support some faulty presupposition of the quote-unquote teacher. Or pastors, certain pastors... Um, who formed in their mind what they believe to be a fantastic sermon series that they're going to turn into a book. The only problem is that now they have to open their Bibles to find verses to support their series, which typically was nothing less than an eisegetical mess. Everything from um, I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me um, for some higher life theology series to um, where two or three are gathered in my name for a series on corporate prayer. <laughs> and if I had a dollar for every time a believer and even an unbeliever quotes to me Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, when I or another preacher name false teachers and their heresies, um, I'd be rich. And you know what that verse is. 
judge not lest you be judged. Which, in context, has to do with judging correctly. And we'll see that, I think. I think we look at that next week. You know, there are some Christians who play um, Bible roulette. Or we might refer to it as Bible bingo. They um, open their Bible faithfully every day. Um, they randomly open it, they close their eyes, they slap down their hand or their finger on a particular text, and they think to themselves that uh, this will be the verse for the day through which God will speak to me without any concern whatsoever for context. Now, in order to rightly divide the word of God, as teachers and preachers are instructed to do, and um, through whom they're to teach God's people to do the same, um, to rightly divide the word of God, we need to rightly interpret the word of God. It's key. We're to study every verse in light of the paragraph, chapter, book, and with the whole of Scripture. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. Um, therefore, to interpret some text according to my own passions or presuppositions, um, that will lead to error. Rather than interpreting it within the context of the whole of Scripture. Amen? That's what we're after here. That's what we're after. Um, you may come across some text that we cover that um, you have been interpreting for many years um, just the way they're not to be interpreted, but that's okay. That's where we grow, amen? We grow together in the grace and um, knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, let's begin this morning by looking at one of the greatest questions in all of Scripture. And it comes to us by way of um, um, an historical narrative. That is Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. I'll lay down the context after I read it. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began from the script, this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. 
context, by way of persecution brought about by the sovereign hand of God to God's people in the city of Jerusalem. He scattered his disciples from out of Jerusalem. Here, Philip was called by God through an angel to go, right? To, to go, not, not to some great metropolitan area of the world, not some mighty city, but here in utter desert road. Go, he says. Where? In a masculated Gentile convert to Judaism, an Ethiopian eunuch was traveling home while reading the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Philip, as commanded, ran alongside the chariot, heard the man reading, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Question of all questions. So he climbs, climbs aboard what was likely you know, a gilded chariot, and he hears him reading the suffering servant passage of Isaiah, what we know as Isaiah 53, and in response, he preached to him Jesus Christ. That's true gospel preaching. You preach Christ here from the Old Testament, specifically here, um, the suffering servant passage of Isaiah, and you all know the rest of the story. Um, he believes, he's baptized, and now you have a convert who goes home to Africa in Christ. You know, Psalm 138 says that you, O Lord, have magnified your word according to all your name. It is God-breathed. It is living, it is active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and is to be rightly divided. But God usually does not have his word act alone. Instead, typically speaking, the word can be confusing until it is activated by someone through the Spirit who explains it who explains the word. Uh, and the one behind it, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't go on by itself. Comprehension of the word of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, is biblically attached to a faithful explanation of the text. How will they hear without a preacher? Paul asks in Romans 10. And how will they preach unless they are sent? So Philip, who was sent, he asks this eunuch, do you understand? You're reading, but do you understand what you are reading? Now, given this man's very powerful position, a proud man might answer, well, of course I do. Followed by the famous words, to me this means... And again, you never want to be in a Bible study like that because it does not matter what it means to you. What matters is what it means by what it says. Can I get a witness from the congregation? <laughs> so instead, this very powerful and prestigious man shows humility and he says, verse 31, how could I? 
How could I unless someone guides me? He invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And by God's divine providential grace, the man comes to saving faith. They pull alongside the road and he's baptized that day. Okay, that is to say everything, friends, is the meaning of the words. Everything is the meaning of the text. Words are irrelevant on their own. What does this mean by what it says? So verse 30 is the key. Do you understand? The emphasis is not on the fact that, oh, you read seven chapters a day. Do you understand what those seven chapters say? <laughs> now consider the Bereans. This is all introduction, of course. Consider the Bereans in Acts 17. We read in verses 11 and 12 that they were more noble-minded because they examined the scriptures. In other words, they aligned what Paul the Apostle was saying with Scripture. Context there, the Old Testament. <laughs> that which Paul was saying about Christ, they examined by way of the Old Testament. The, the New Testament wasn't in circulation yet. Because Scripture is the judge, not personal experience, not, not personal visions. We test everything in light of the text. You know, there are Christians who faithfully read their Bible every day, and that's a great thing. Every day they read their Bible, but many do not have a sound understanding of doctrine. They, they may have numerous Bible verses memorized and a terrible theological understanding. So what does it matter how much you read if you do not understand? I, I know a man who would boast about the fact, at least at that point in time, of not missing a day of reading his Bible in 12 years. Now, if you ask that man to define the difference between justification and sanctification, or to divine, define for you the meaning of propitiation, and those are all words that are in the Bible, they're not theological terms that stand alone from the Bible. If you were to ask him to define the difference between the two or propitiation, he would look at you like the RCA dog. No, I'm not kidding. You know, in the RCA dog, you remember? Sitting in front of a photograph like this, a phonograph. We don't want to do that. So the, 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 the result of much memorization without understanding is not helpful. We must read for the sake of, do you what? Do you understand? And in order to rightly understand any particular text, it's important that we understand context. Amen? Context, grammar, genre, Okay, is this text I'm reading, is this historical narrative? Is it wisdom literature? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it a parable? Is it apocalyptic? Is it an indicative? Is it an imperative? That is, is this a statement of fact or is this a command? Is it figurative language? Is it singular? Is it in the plural? Is it speaking in the past or present tense? All these things, amen. 
which means there are two conflicting approaches to biblical interpretation. Exegesis and eisegesis. Um, Exegesis is to examine the scripture, exposit the scripture, explain the text by um, careful objective analysis. The word exegesis literally means to lead out of. That's what we try to do here every week, to lead out of the text. This is what it says. This is the context. We want to exegete this text. We want to lead out of the text rather than eisegete the text. Eisegesis is to, to press your own presuppositions or passions into the text. We don't want to do that. Many people do that. Many people in the false prosperity gospel movement do that. I was watching some of those lunatics on TV last night. Why do you watch them? To keep up with what they're saying. To protect God's people from heresy. Okay, that's our introduction. And we have time. I think we'll look at one verse today. Okay? Now, this one, you can open up to the book of Jeremiah. Um, This verse... Um, many refer to as their life verse, okay? Many Christians say, this is my life verse, and they claim it as their own, of course, in Jesus' name. You got to throw in Jesus' name at the end of it for it to, to work in their minds, right? In the name of Jesus, and that is Jeremiah 29.11. Okay, this verse to many echoes the American dream with God's endorsement behind it. The word of God reads, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, if you play Bible bingo and open up on one early morning, devotional time, and slap your finger on that verse and say, here's the word of the Lord for me today. You may think that that's a powerful, great promise of prosperity, protection, and hope for a great future for you, the individual Christian. That verse has been used by some church plants as their launching verse. Jeremiah 29.11. It's often quoted when um, a fellow believer is in the midst of a trial um, to encourage and or inspire them, prompting them to remember the promise of God. Remember God's promise for you. He, he, He has specific plans to help you prosper. Claim it. Claim it in the name of Jesus. Own it. It's quoted to individuals um, who are struggling with vocation, you know, trying um, to discern God's will. Now, the, the most popular misuse and um, gross abuse of this verse is what spurred the prosperity gospel movement. That God wants you, yes, you, the individual Christian, to prosper. How? With money, with health, with happiness, enticing many professing Christians 
to fill arenas every week eager for their share. I've directly quoted over the past few weeks false teachers who misuse this verse and other verses to support the nonsense of getting out your checkbook and talking to it. Get it out. You tell it to be filled and the fact that you're going to be filled and it's going to be a blessing and you're going to be a blessing. Because God promises to what? Prosper you. If you don't like the sarcasm, we'll be reminded today that many places of scripture are filled with sarcasm when addressing false teaching, as you will see this morning in 1 Corinthians, just in case you have a problem with it. Okay? Although I've quoted those false teachers, let me tell you this. Mansions, Mercedes, material blessings, and a life free from worry is not what the Lord was declaring in Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, first, it's not written to individuals at all. It's written to a large group of people, a whole group of people. That is the entire Israelite nation context. In Jeremiah 29, 10... There, God lays out the specifics of the promise, right? Notice, and that is that he will fulfill it. He'll fulfill that promise after 70 years are completed for Babylon. You're going to be taken captive exiles to Babylon, And when we studied Daniel um, in Sunday school um, a, a number of months ago, we read this in fulfillment of that. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave, okay? Again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the temple itself. And then they take the choicest young people of the day and they groom them under Babylonian philosophy education, and so on. And then you know the rest of the story. Daniel heads the way, and he's there the entire 70 years. That's the context. He will fulfill it after 70 years. In other words, God says to the Israelite nation, I will deliver you after 70 years in exile. And during those seven decades of exile, if you notice in verses 5 through 9, the instruction of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. When you get there, when you're exiled, taken by the hand of Babylon, which is according to my divine decreed will, you are to settle down, 
You're to make yourselves at home in Mesopotamia. And while you're there, build houses, plant gardens. I want you to marry and raise your children and even pray. And even pray for the well-being of the conquering enemy's capital city. Isn't that amazing? That's the context. While you're there, pray for that capital city. And by the way, also ignore those who will come in my name who are false prophets. Ignore their empty promises. Because the plans I have for you will be after 70 years of exile. Hmm. So 70 years were ordained, not by the devil. God does the ordaining. God ordained 70 years of exile. They will stay in Babylon, but yet he graciously promises that he was not yet finished with his people. God chastens those he loves. I don't like it, but he does. I like that he loves me, but I don't like him chastening me. And the, the, the Lord's final goal was indeed to prosper his elect and bring a repentant Judah back to the land. A repentant people back to Judah. So think about this. God's mouthpiece himself, Jeremiah the prophet, had a less than prosperous life from our finite perspective. Almighty man of God, yeah. You want to be that? Rejected, hated, forced from his home. The very people of God who are supposed to be the people of God hated the preacher. He was in prison, thrown in a miry pit. Oh, well, he prospered, didn't he? True preachers have always been despised. even by some believers, or at least they claim to be believers. So the Lord did indeed have a future. He did have a hope for them, but far different from what the Israelites could have ever expected. So God lays down the promise. So it's a far cry from, you know, any expectation of this verse in what God's plans for us to prosper really are. Far cry. So the context for Jeremiah 29, verse 11, um, really eliminates um, any ideas that God promises you a future of, of riches and comfort. God provides, amen? Abundantly. Graciously. But context is key. Context is key. To, to prosper our plans of welfare um, doesn't refer to money or, or material blessings as we read this. What this has to do it, it, with is, is physical and spiritual salvation for these exiles. So the application for us is much greater than, than prospering in the here and now under the American dream. I mean, this, this is an amazing story of redemptive history. That's what the Bible is. 
It's redemptive history. It's showing us how God ordained the plan and carried out that plan in time and space to bring about his son, the Messiah. Jesus, Yahweh is salvation. That's prosperity. That's a future. That's a hope. You'll never be harmed because he was harmed. So this points us to a much greater release and greater redemption for all God's people throughout redemptive history. Those under the old covenant, those under the new covenant. Because of the one who fulfills it all. So more than all else, uh, God wants us to prosper in terms of salvation. And this is, you know, this passage also is a great reminder for us of, of God's power. That is uh, the power of the word of God and another prophecy fulfilled. 70 years of exile. Mighty kingdoms come and they go. Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, Romans, Americans, nothing. 200 years old? <laughs> nothing. Drop in the bucket are the nations, according to the word of God. A drop in the bucket. So some might ask, you know, you may be here, you may be asking, um, well, doesn't God want us to prosper here and now? Well, indeed, in, indeed, look, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from where? From above, coming down from the Father of lights, James 1.17, with whom, with whom there is no variation of change. No variation of change. The Father of lights, he, he, he is eternal, almighty, sovereign, omnipotent God. Context of that verse, James 1.17 who God is does not change when our circumstances change. He doesn't go from being a good God to a bad God when our trials begin. And let not the man say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. But we're drawn away by our own lustful intentions. He remains good. Now, he may chasten us when we get hooked by those temptations, but he remains faithful through and, and through. So this can cause us also to, to, to look at the spiritual life we've been given, spiritual life that is truly ours in God through Christ, while, while trusting in a future that is yet to come. We've already been ushered in to the kingdom of Almighty God, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, but we, we have not yet entered in, as we'll be reminded this morning, of the consummation of that kingdom, new heaven, new earth. So this also reminds us, Jeremiah 29, of the co collective salvation of all of God's people from throughout redemptive history. 
That's another applicable point for us. We live in the midst of, of, of exile now, so to speak, right? We're on a fallen earth. We're pilgrims making our journey towards the promised land, new heaven, new earth. And that's what's ultimately in view here is God's faithfulness um, to save um, his covenant people, old covenant, new covenant, who are one in, in Christ. So remember, in, in this our first study, um, you remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees? Well, on a number of occasions, but on one occasion in particular, he said that you make void the word of God through your traditions. Christians can do the same thing by elevating traditional interpretations of various passages of scripture, which are just plain wrong. So then, do you understand what you are reading? That is the question. And we'll work our way through um, a number of uh, often misquoted scriptures. Some, um, it will be laughable. Um, others, you will go, ooh, didn't realize that. But that's okay. Amen? I don't have all the answers. The book does. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the understanding um, that we have been given by the gift of your Holy Spirit and help us to, to continue to grow um, in understanding um, your gracious, precious word. For your glory and the good of your people, we pray. Amen.